0: driving in traffic and working on the 40th floor of a skyscraper just didn't make sense to me anymore. And I thought, man, I need to be here.
1: Dina Palvo is an educator and an activist. Okay. Today, she's also my tour guide. I promise I will not take up too much of your time. I, I
0: have, I'm in no rush, and this is my favorite thing to talk about.
1: Dina's agreed to give me a tour of this relatively tiny stretch of Oregon's southern coast, where the cliff sides give way to something very different. These swaths of rolling sand dunes, It's a piece of landscape that's unlike anything you'll find pretty much anywhere else in this region. I suspect I have a pretty good answer to this question just looking out at the coast here, but uh, what brought you to this part of the world?
0: Well, it was the Oregon Dunes actually. My brother brought me out here and it changed my life. I went home and said to my husband, what do you think about moving and quit my job and moved out here.
1: And your husband didn't, like the the dunes was a good enough reason.
0: Yeah, he loved them too, so it wasn't
1: hard. (laughs) Dina isn't the first person to fall for the Oregon Dunes. Over the years, this place has served as inspiration for all kinds of artists, researchers, activists, and journalists, too. In the 1950s, one of those journalists, this guy named Frank, shows up here because he's going to do a story on how the sand is being populated with beach grass. But when Frank comes to Oregon, he's kind of stunned by what he sees, so much so that he decides to write a novel inspired by the Dunes. It ends up being a pretty big hit.
2: His books under the Dune title takes us to a strange planet where life and death is determined by a spice
1: which is Dune terribly... that sci-fi series you've heard so much about maybe you've read the books or seen the movies it's inspired by a small beach on the Oregon coast this beach that i'm standing on right now but the book isn't about the beauty of the dunes It's actually about how fragile this place is. Dune is conceived of as a a planet that is totally desert. How easily it could just vanish. So that water on it is the metaphor of,
2: say, oil here. It is a metaphor of uh, clean air. And it's a metaphor for the shortages that we are encountering because of overpopulation.
1: The concerns in Herbert's book about humans impacting a place aren't that different from the concerns of activists half a century later. Standing at the edge of the dunes today, there's a sense that something unique and beautiful is disappearing under the weight of consumption, development, exploitation, the engines of the modern world. And it's not just a feeling, you can see the effects right here on the face of the landscape. And am I correct in thinking that it hasn't always looked the way it does?
0: You are exactly correct. In fact, if you look out across, you can see that we are standing kind of in a hill of grass, and below us is some open sand, and then we have a lot of trees. What you should be looking at here historically would be all open sand.
1: Of course, that's not what we're looking at. Under our feet are patches of white grass sprouting up all over the place. Dina tells me a lot of this dates back to the early white settlers, who came out here and couldn't quite figure out how to colonize sand. How do you own property in a landscape that keeps shifting beneath you? A solution to that is planting grass, which holds its place. But as a result, the dunes are now slowly becoming unrecognizable.
0: I want to just get up like on the roof of my house and scream to everybody like, oh my gosh, this is happening and we could do something and we're not doing it.
1: My name's Omar Alakad. And this is Without, a show about what happens when things we've taken for granted suddenly disappear. I'm a journalist and a novelist. My first book, American War, was set in a future ravaged by climate change. If you've read that novel, please don't be afraid. I promise this podcast won't be nearly as depressing. Actually, don't hold me to that. Right now, around the world, we are exerting more force on this planet than at any other time in human history. Geological shifts that used to take centuries, they now take decades. The thing Frank Herbert must have felt, standing out on those dunes, the sense that something vital is slipping away, it's not unique. And I think for many people, myself included, it's kind of the underlying emotion that we all live with now. What do we do about this growing negative space? The things we've lost, the things we are losing the things we should probably give up. That's what we're here to look at. It's about how the world that we will see in the future might look nothing like the one we knew before, which to be fair, can be a good thing sometimes. On this first episode, I wanted to look at something that we're running out of, something so mundane, so everyday, that we really don't think about it twice. And yet something that, outside of air and water, is also the most used commodity on the planet. So much so that there are criminal organizations siphoning the stuff off from beaches and riverbeds, there's billions of dollars spent, and in some cases, people have been killed over this stuff. In Dune, the precious endangered thing, the thing that the whole universe is after, is spice, a resource that's buried in a planet of sand. But here on Earth, the thing we're running out of isn't buried in the sand. It is the sand.
2: We're doing massive environmental damage all over the world to get at the sand we need. We're ripping up riverbeds, tearing up, stripping beaches bare. And in some places, organized crime has gotten into the act and people are being murdered over
1: sand. You literally wrote the book on sand, which immediately raises the question, why?
2: Yeah, why in the world would I write a whole book about what sounds like the most boring subject on earth?
1: Vince Beiser is a journalist and the author of The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transformed civilization. Sand,
2: even though it seems like the most unimportant thing on Earth, it's actually the most important solid substance on the planet. All the buildings that make all our cities made out of sand. All the roads that connect all those buildings also made out of sand. Asphalt, concrete. All the windows in every one of those buildings also made out of sand. glass is just sand that's been melted down. Even the computer chips that power our cell phones and our computers, also made from sand. So it turns out, no sand, no modern civilization. And the thing is, we have been building cities at such a pace and on such a scale that we are actually starting to run out of sand. So the number one thing that we use sand for by far is concrete, and The sand that we use for that is, it is really common. You find it in pretty much every country in the world. That's why it's such a popular building material.
1: So how could we be running out of this thing when we've got the Sahara sitting right there? Well, the answer is pretty simple. For things like concrete, sand from the Sahara, or really any other desert, isn't going to cut it. It's the wrong shape. The grains in the Sahara have been smoothed out by the air. And the kind of sand you need for construction is the stuff that's been shaped by water, river sand. River sand grains are more angular, so they fit together better. As Vince Beiser puts it, it's the difference between trying to build something out of bricks and trying to build with marbles.
2: So you can get it by, by
1: ripping up uh, topsoil or, or forests or, or
2: farmer's fields and digging up sand that's underneath it. But the most common way, the easiest way, is from riverbeds. You just put a big old barge out in the middle of a river, Drop a big pipe down to the bottom of the river, just like a big straw, and just just suck the sand right up off the bottom of the river onto your boat. You're good to go. So it's really easy, it's really cheap, but man, it is terrible for the rivers and everything that's living in them.
1: It's hard to overstate just how many kinds of terrible Vince is talking about. Let's say one of these big barge things shows up and starts pulling out all the precious sand from the bottom of a river. First, the whole process is gonna kick up all kinds of silt, mud, whatever's been sitting down there at the bottom. And when that stuff hits the surface, it blocks the sunlight, which in turn messes with the entire ecosystem. So the fish start to die, and then the things that eat the fish, and so on. And that's to say nothing of the fact that the river itself is also physically changing. And despite that... Sand is now
2: the most consumed natural resource on Earth. We use sand more than any other natural resource except for water. We use about 50 billion tons of it every year. That's enough to cover the entire state of California every single year. And the main reason for that is because we're building cities on a scale and at a pace that has never remotely happened before in human history.
1: A scale so vast that the price of sand has soared over the past few decades. And all that money has attracted the same kind of criminality that vast sums of money have always attracted. Enter the sand mafia.
2: There's people who are being murdered by sand gangs because they're getting in their way, environmentalists, journalists, government officials, right? It sounds crazy, but it's just like uh, fighting over drug turf or anything else.
3: And I know of officers who go to these sites in disguise because they are afraid.
1: That's after the break. Black
0: perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.
4: This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast, where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depth and dark corners of twisted imaginations Knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we're back. It was the early 2000s, and Sumaira Abdulali found this whole undercover act pretty bizarre. Why would officers need to hide out in order to watch something that was happening every day? In her beachside town, a short drive outside of Mumbai, Samara started seeing people hauling away sand casually. No cops, no ruckus, and apart from her, not really much interest.
3: And I complained to the local administration, which is the collector. And the collector told me that I shouldn't worry about things like sand. But, you know, if you catch them red-handed, we'll see.
1: Just a note, um, during our call, the audio dropped out a couple of times. If it sounds a little different, that's why.
3: I I knew he was just fobbing me off, really, because no one in their right minds goes and catches a sand miner red-handed. And anyway, I'd be crazy to try.
1: Beyond contacting her local council member, what other recourse did she really have? At this point in her life, her primary focus wasn't on politics. It was on raising her two children.
3: I couldn't bear to have my beach ruined for them.
1: So she went home.
3: The house I lived in was on the beach, right on the beach. There was, There's the house and then there's the beach.
1: Around midnight, Smyra is woken by a phone call. It's one of her neighbors. They knew she wasn't happy about the sand miners.
3: You said you'd do something. Well, these trucks are here now. Do something. I didn't plan. I didn't plan because the more you think about it, the more you know that it's something that you should not do. So I didn't ask anyone. I didn't tell anyone. I just went.
1: Before she leaves, she calls the police and asks them to send someone over.
3: Yeah, well, I drive down to the beach and there's a narrow beach access road. So I drove onto the road and blocked it so that these guys couldn't get past me. I didn't expect them to come back for hours. The place that I was in it was right in the middle of the village, not deserted at all.
1: But as she's waiting for the police to arrive, sitting in her car, the sand bandits spot her. They stopped their operation and start packing up their stuff.
3: They saw the car blocking the road, and they tried to tell me to move, and I refused. Then they couldn't get past, and uh, there were quite a few of them. They tried to pull me out, and they, they hit me on the head. And uh, they picked up the whole car and moved it to the side, and uh, then they left. And the police came maybe 15 minutes after that. You could see that I was in pain because I had uh, bruises and, you know, other things, uh, broken teeth.
1: A few hours earlier, Samara was home. She was safe. Now suddenly, the stand she's decided to make against the sand traffickers leaves her not just with physical injuries, but something else too, a pain that's a little more difficult to define.
3: You know, I think the shame of being attacked, I did something wrong. I have you know, I shouldn't have done this or that, you know, which was part of the deterrent, right?
1: It might not have been an overwhelming victory for the efforts to stop sand mining.
3: No one cared about sand mining, but the attack on me was news. And I started getting calls from villagers in other districts and other places, and one of them asked me to come to a place called Mahad. I just thought that it's a completely different place. I, I'll just go and see. So the first time was the beach. This was a creek, which is actually completely different. I picked up this local guy and we drove out to the site. It's the foothills of the Western Ghats. I had hoped that we won't be noticed because we're just driving through this area, right? It was very thickly forested.
1: So thickly forested, in fact, that it would have been too difficult to park and then hike through all the foliage. And even then, they'd be too far from the sand miners to get a good photo anyway. So instead, the local who came with Samira suggests they take a boat down the creek until they were close enough to take pictures. Only problem is, if they did that, there'd be no place to hide. The sand miners would see them just as clearly as they could see the sand miners.
3: He said, it's fine, it's fine, so we went.
1: Samira and her makeshift team get in the man's boat. Slowly, they close in until they're near enough to get some decent pictures. By this point, it's useless to try and disguise what they're doing so they don't bother. They just start snapping away. And at first, the folks being photographed don't seem to do much about it.
3: I saw them seeing me and, you know, picking up the mobile phone, calling. So then we went back and we got into the car and then it wasn't that fine anymore.
1: Behind them, a few of the sand miners got into their own vehicle.
3: I told my driver, please move, I will drive. It was intuitive.
1: It's worth noting here that Samaira is married to a former rally car driver. If you don't know rally racing, it's basically this weird mix of going really fast and sliding around sharp curves and generally doing all of this stuff off-road on some pretty horrendous terrain.
3: He was always getting into scrapes, you know, bashing up a car somewhere.
1: So that's what Samara's husband had been doing.
3: And he had also taught me how to drive. In that situation, you're just driving, right? You're not really thinking how far I am, where you're going to go, what's going to happen. None of it. You just have to keep going because you can't let the guy catch up. And he couldn't catch up. And the guys behind the, you know, the local guy and all of them, they were yelling, go, go, don't stop, don't stop. And this was very twisty, narrow, winding dirt track, exactly like I had been taught to drive on. Finally, we got to a slightly more populated area where there were people. And there was a bridge across the river and there was this truck parked in the middle of the bridge. And so I tried to overtake this truck from the left. And he swerved into me on the left and I knew he was trying to push me off that bridge. If I had been driving at high speed, I would have toppled over that bridge because the railings were broken. These guys then tried to get us out of the car
1: all of this is happening in a public place, so naturally a crowd of civilians starts to form.
3: And there were also two traffic policemen.
1: Samira gets out of the car, but now there's all these people around, and the folks who've been chasing her really don't want to assault her in front of everyone. So instead, they focus on the men who came with Samira.
3: They smashed the glasses of the car, but these traffic policemen, I thought, thought it, this was all you know going a bit too far. So they somehow convinced them to go to the police station. And then these guys came in and the police said, now we are going to file a complaint against you because you have injured these people.
1: And who was it that got injured? One of the guys chasing Samara. He'd busted his hand trying to break the glass.
3: He had blood running down his arm. He was injured. They had to file this complaint against me. It makes no sense, right? That you have some... Somebody telling you that sand mining is such a non-issue that don't you shouldn't bother about it at all, and on the other hand, someone is willing to attack you physically to not be caught.
1: She was just starting out as an activist, and already Samira had ended up in the hospital. She'd been nearly run off a bridge. In retrospect, it sounds pretty cinematic. But the thing is, Samira is not some undercover agent in a movie. She doesn't do jujitsu, but along with off-road driving there are some other things she knows how to do.
3: So I decided that I would try and gather data and I found that there was very little data available at all. So my way of gathering data was to drive around and try and figure out where sand mining is happening and photograph it, which is easier said than done because you, know, you have to be at the right spot at the right time without really you know, any kind of information really. But without data, you can't move forward at all
1: This new tactic, while less dramatic, did bring results. A judge, after seeing Sumaira's findings, issued two rulings. The first was a policy change, restricting illicit sand mining. The second tasked the Indian government with finding building materials other than sand. But as you may have guessed by now, Indian sand isn't just used in India. The country is one of the biggest exporters in the world. Some of its largest buyers? The UK, the US, Belgium. So sure, within the context of India, this was a win, but globally, it was a different matter.
3: When the United Nations had their Convention of Biodiversity in India in 2012, I presented a side event, which was called Don't Bury the Issue of Sand Mining.
1: Which sounds exactly like what it was.
3: We actually went out on the beach and buried ourselves to say we are in solidarity with the sand and uh, presented it to the UN. And... Everyone was surprised.
1: Not by the publicity stunt. They'd seen that before. But that's not what a stunt is for. The point is to show everyone what they've been missing.
3: The UN, who said that coastal issues are among their most important priority areas, did not recognize anything about sand. They had no studies, no documentation, nothing.
1: One of the interesting things about talking to Samira is that she often seems far more concerned about the issues than, say, getting run off a bridge. You talk about some of this stuff fairly casually, but, but you're talking about people trying to kill you and sending you to the hospital. And d- at any point, did you start thinking, maybe it'd be a good idea for me to stop doing
3: this? Many times, of course. But, you know, I guess you have to be a bit crazy. And also, you have to decide whether you want to do something or you want to give up.
1: More on that in a minute. but not on everything. I, Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say Oof. what you're going to say and I'll circle back. No,
0: I- Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.
1: We're back. There's this famous saying about how all politics is local. And to a certain extent, that's probably true of activism, too. Samira never set out to be this leader of the sand mining opposition. She certainly never set out to get into wild car chases or end up in the hospital with her teeth broken. All this started because she wanted to save the beach she grew up around.
3: Because I believed it was a local issue. It was my problem, my beach.
1: Ironically, one of the most important movements to ban illegal sand mining started with someone saying what is, in most contexts, Not the sort of thing people associate with progressive activism. Not in my backyard.
3: So you could say that my my work started that way, with NIMBY. And I really feel that, you know, we we use it in a very denigrating way. It's the person who sees and experiences and loves their own backyard who... uh, Who will fight for it? Who else is going to fight for it? And of course, we know now that all of these little, little harms, somebody's backyard and somebody else's backyard and the third person's backyard, is giving us climate change, which is affecting collectively all of our backyards.
1: But what started in someone's backyard didn't end there. Over the past few years, the work that Sumaira and other activists spearheaded has gone from local skirmishes to state court to the United Nations. In 2018, the UN called in a group of experts to discuss sand mining. The experts had a number of questions. One of them, what could we replace sand with? And there were some alternatives, in some cases, ones we'd previously tossed out.
3: We do have the solutions in the form of garbage. And we have some of the biggest garbage dumps in the world which can be recycled and can be used as a substitute for sand.
1: In Ghana and the Netherlands, engineers have built sections of the road using recycled plastic. That helps to reduce the amount of sand and all the other resources that usually go into something like asphalt. So there, I told you the show would not be a total bummer. There's a problem. Even if we were to transition to plastic or shredded rubber or those old troll pencil tops or whatever, none of that does much to fix the underlying issue which is the sheer quantity of stuff that we're using. You know, if you step
2: back and think about it, we use 50 billion tons of sand and gravel every single year.
1: Author Vince Beiser again.
2: So even if we could replace all of that with some other natural substance, hemp or bamboo or whatever, how are we gonna get 50 billion tons of bamboo every year? Right? As long as we're consuming quantities on that scale, we're gonna be causing problems. So the question really isn't, how can we use less sand? The question really is, how can we use less of everything? We've all heard this a million times before, right? That we're we're running out of fresh water. We're running out of fish in the oceans. We're cutting down too many trees, right? And now come to find out we're running out of sand, which is the most abundant thing on the planet. These are not separate issues to my mind. These are all symptoms of the same problem, And that problem is that we're just consuming too much. And we, again, I mean human beings, but especially we human beings that live in the Western world. Got to find ways to build those cities in ways that consume fewer resources across the board.
1: There's a line from Dune that I always go back to. It is said, in the desert, possession of water in great amounts can inflict a man with a fatal carelessness. Right around the time Frank Herbert was writing those words, his country was settling into a mode of living that so many of us have since taken for granted. It's a mode of living that basically says the only indicator of things getting better is us having more. That every facet of life must get bigger, faster, more expedient, more convenient. But maybe to avoid the worst of the future we're hurtling towards, there's an entirely different way of being that we have to adjust to, and adjust quickly. Or maybe I've got it all wrong. And what we really need right now is equal parts patience and perseverance.
3: You know, I told you how when I was attacked the first time and the case is still in court and it's 19 years. So it's not that I've been busy every second of the day for 19 years. That's impossible. It's just that you have to be patient. You have to be actively patient. (laughs)
1: Over the next few episodes, we're going to look at a bunch of things we might one day have to do without. From tangible resources like antibiotics to more abstract things like the idea of home in the era of climate change. And some things maybe that you didn't even know were disappearing. More on that next week. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Lakad. This episode was produced by Jordan Allen, with help from Fendel Fulton and research from Zoe Bruskin. It was edited by Emil Klein. Thank you to the composer, sound designer, and mixer, Jonah Catcher, And special thanks to our production and development coordinator, Zaley Mahone, and executive producers, Harry Nelson and Claire Slaughter.